Foxes and Fowl is a movement committed to exploring and responding to the unexpected ways that God is moving and speaking in and around us. This podcast is part of that. We want to have conversations that matter with folks in all kinds of walks of life because we believe that the God of the Bible so often shows up in surprising and everyday kinds of ways. We want to pay attention and talk about that and just maybe be changed by it all. Thanks for joining the conversation. Hey, I'm Aaron. Welcome to the Foxes and Fowl podcast. My guest today is Dr. Leslie Paris, Associate Professor of History at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Paris's focus is on American social and cultural history, with a particular interest in families. I heard her speak at a roundtable on politics and religion ahead of the most recent American election, and that was the conversation that made me want to talk to her more. I'm delighted she's taken the time to be with us today. Stick around afterwards for some things I'm taking away from our time. And until then, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Leslie Paris. Dr. Leslie Paris, welcome to the Foxes and Fowl podcast. It's, uh, it's so good to meet you, even in this kind of strange way. Thanks for being here. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, I, I'm excited about this conversation. I did a little bit of research, um, uh, a very little bit of research about the things that you research, and I, I think uh, some of it's uh, uh, really fascinating. So I want to jump right into it. Um, you know, one of the things that we often talk about on this podcast is the idea of vocation or calling or you know, kind of what we're meant to do with our lives and how we figure that out, which I think is a question a lot of people show up to uh, university with. Um, so you're, you're an associate professor of history here at UBC. And yeah. uh, you seem especially interested, based on what I, what I read, in uh, generational and kind of intergenerational issues, which I, I think is fascinating and, and not necessarily what I think of when I think of history as a kind of discipline. Uh, I, I, was, I was delighted to see that. Um, so I want to ask you about the, the work that you do and kind of how you ended up here. Uh, what made you become a history professor? And so, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, for the benefit of any undergraduates who might be listening, who might be wondering what they want to do and feeling like they don't have it together, I'll start by saying that when I started university, I really had no idea what <laughs> I wanted to major in. And uh, in my first year, I never took a history course. I took arts courses more generally. And it wasn't until my second year at university that I took my first history course and I loved it. Mm. I, I really loved it. I loved the stories I was learning. It was a course in early American history and everything from the history of American witchcraft trials um, and historians' speculations about why they had taken place to the rise of the uh, American Industrial Revolution and its effects on ordinary Americans. Um, I, I really loved the attention that historians brought to looking carefully at sources from hundreds of years ago, to thinking about what it might have been like to live in earlier times. Um, and to reflecting also on what history can tell us about our own struggles. So I'll just say, I think many people experience high school history as uh, an exercise in memorization, at least some of the time, <laughs> memorizing names and dates. Yeah. That's never been 
what's most interesting to me about history. Um, it's really the, the, the arguments, the evidence, the ability to empathize with people in different historical times and places. Um, and uh, when it, it, so I started taking more history courses and I realized at 19, this is what I wanna do. I was in a course in uh, gender history and I thought, I wanna be that professor who's <laughs> delivering this lecture. I wanna be her. Wow. And um, it seemed like such a strangely specific vocation that I decided that I would take at least three years off before applying to graduate <laughs> school to make sure that that is what I wanted to do. And I worked for nonprofits and I did other kinds of things. And by year two, I was itching to get back to school. Um, it, it really was the right path for me. That's, that's wonderful. I, I love <laughs> I like that you were so sure that you had to take time off <laughs> just to make sure that you're even sure. Uh, that's great. And it's, it's wonderful when we encounter those people who make us want to want to do a thing, right? That's, uh, that's so important, I think. Um, well, thanks for that. I, I, I first encountered you at a, a, a roundtable on politics and religion uh, on Zoom just before uh, the most recent American election where you gave a paper on the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, uh, not N-U-N-S, <laughs> uh, people of no religious affi affiliation. Um, it's particularly, I think it was among young adults in the States. And if I recall correctly, it was sort of correlated to a response to a certain kind of popular expression of faith in that country. Um, and, and, you know, as a, as a ministry on campus, trying to embody an expression of, of Christian faith that doesn't always make the headlines, um, I think this is really interesting. And so I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you what you learned uh, putting that work together and and maybe if, if you have a thought about why we're seeing this kind of rise in religious uh, non-affiliation or, or disaffiliation. So I'll, I'll start with your first question, how I started thinking about this group. Um, I'm not specifically a historian of religion, but I do work on youth. Um, usually I've worked on children and childhood and to some degree on parenting, but I, um, I was working on a final lecture for a course on American history, 1945 to the present. This was a number of years ago. And I was thinking about contemporary trends um, related to issues I'd been talking about in the class. And one of them was about the importance of religion and um, the, the ways in which religion played into political life in the late 20th century. So I had been doing a little bit of research on trends in religious experience in the United States in more recent years. And I was really, um, I was struck by this uh, fairly recent development since, since the 90s um, of the number of people who described themselves as not anything in particular or not religious at all. Um, and uh, I found that there was, there was some data on it um, and increasing amounts of data as the group of people who described themselves as not religiously affiliated appeared to be growing. 
Um, so one thing I would just say about that group, the nuns as they're called, um, is that sometimes there's three different groups who are getting lumped together into that categorization. So one is atheists, one is agnostics, one is people who say, I'm nothing in particular. And they are distinctive groups, um, but if you put them together, they, uh, like the, the Pew Research Center, for example, which studies uh, American religious thought among other things, estimates um, currently that among the religiously unaffiliated, th that, uh, that, that about 30% of Americans are religiously unaffiliated, about 5% are atheists, 6% agnostic, and uh, maybe 18 to 20% or so are uh, nothing in particular, wow. which, you know, which is this much larger group. Um, so then the question was, uh, what does it mean that this group is growing? What, what do we make of this? Um, what does it tell us about where the United States is going? And um, so there has been research, not research that I've done myself, but that I can speak to about uh, why, why, uh, why this might be the case. Um, but um, before I get into that, just one last thing I would say about the nuns more generally is that many people who describe themselves as nothing in particular also say that they believe in God or that they feel connected with nature and the earth. Um, mm -hmm. A number of them, maybe a third say they're spiritual even if they're not religious maybe a fifth of them say they pray every day. So when we think wow. about what it is to be a nun, there's clearly an enormous range of spiritual belief um, that goes into this category. Um, but these are people huh. who are choosing not to affiliate with a particular um, religious institution. So the question is, why? Um, and there has been um, some uh, debate about, you know, why this might be. Um, and, and I can go through some of the, you know, the reasons that, that people have brought forward who, who work on this. Um, one is, um, that uh, there have been delays in the age of marriage and the age of parenthood, that some of the uh, institutional frameworks that might have brought young adults into religion um, have been less active, um, that nuns may be less likely to be joiners in general, that, mm. um, you know, uh, that, uh, bowling alone syndrome. Yeah, that, that, you know, that people are less involved necessarily or enmeshed in social institutions. Um, there's also the broader issue of secularization. There is plenty of data to suggest that in wealthier, more politically stable countries, 
there is often um, less religious commitment. Um, there seems mm. to be a correlation. And in some ways, the United States has been, which is the country I study, has been a bit of an outlier in this respect, um, has higher religious participation, even though it's considered to be a wealthier nation. Mm. Um, but younger people are particularly likely to be nuns, um, to be less affiliated. And mm. uh, um, so there do seem to be generational divides um, as well um, that, that, that dis distinguish between those who are um, consider themselves to be part of a religious community and those who don't. And, um, uh, you know, although some claim that people may become more religious over the course of the lifespan. Um, as they get older, as they face different kinds of personal struggles or um, you know, moments um, in their lives where religion might play a, a role, there isn't really good evidence to suggest that that's what's happening necessarily. Huh. I am fascinated that such a huge chunk of that 30% of people is is uh is not hostile <laughs> towards religion it's just, they're just not they're kind of indifferent I, I i've often thought that hostility is actually easier to deal with when you want to have a good <laughs> conversation about religion or theology or whatever because at least you have a, a shared language base uh you know like whether you're for or against it you, you kind of know what you're talking about but this kind of indifference uh to religion which is is not the full 20 percent of of people but sounds like there, there's a significant number of them uh, who, who would just sort of shrug their shoulders at religion rather than be actively against it. Some have called them the shoulder shruggers. Oh, um, oh there you go. <laughs> uh, I've seen that term used. And, and yes, um, these are people who, when interviewed, will often say that they see some good in religion but that it's not for them or that they have some concerns about the, the politics of religion. Mm. There may also be small numbers who see themselves as unaffiliated because they participate in very small unaffiliated churches, for example, and don't see themselves as part of a larger religious community. Um, so there, I think there's really enormous variation um, between those who are really disaffected but not anti-religious yeah, and yeah. those who have some kind of spiritual practice but don't want to or feel like it's necessary to affiliate with a religious institution. Yeah, I, th I think it's really interesting too that uh, political stability tends to correlate with a decrease in religiosity. <laughs> uh, and I wonder, I have a friend who, who thinks that uh, the, the um, sort of obsession with conspiracy theories is actually a, a search for theodicy, a, a reason to explain why things are going not the way we wanted them to go. And so I, I guess completely if there's- agree. Yeah. Yeah, so that, you know, QAnon is, is, is really just <laughs> uh, like it's complete 
lunacy to most of us, but but it's like the pe people for whom the world is not going the way they thought it was going to go. It, it provides a reason for that. Um, and so, yeah, I guess if we feel, I've often thought it's, it's hard to be a Christian with a credit card uh, because we just don't have any, re you know, we are perfectly self-sufficient. Um, and so political stability, I think is, yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. I guess I knew it in terms of numbers, but I hadn't really put those two things together. Well, first of all, I agree completely about the quasi-religious appeal of conspiracy theory. I think it is doing for some of its adherents um, some of the same kind of work of suturing people together and giving them a sense of common cause and moral purpose, even though it's based on fallacies. And uh, um, if you look internationally, like I'm really a historian of the United States, so I can't speak extensively to um, international religious trends, but I've looked and there was a study in the last 10 years that looked at 106 nations and found that in 41 of them, um, uh, younger people were significantly less likely to be religiously involved than older people. By, by younger, they meant people under 40. Um, that's where they, and yeah. <laughs> and uh, the only two exceptions, like all the other countries, it was neutral, except there were two countries in which younger people appeared to be more religiously observant. And those were like two countries that had experienced significant um, violence internally where there had been like conflict. So um, uh, I, I think the, the evidence does suggest that, um, that, that for young people in the main, um, in countries that are more secure, that are more comfortable, um, religious observance has been for an increasing number of young people. And especially if you look at the very youngest, like the 18 to 22 year old set, less compelling. Yeah, wow. And, you know, historically speaking, the 90s are, are yesterday. You know, I was already an adult during part of the 90s. Um, and uh, yeah, what what do you have any sense of, of why why now? Is it is it just the sort of increase in in secularization? Is it uh, um, is anybody guessing at, at why this particular moment in history is causing people to? to dis disassociate with organized religion? There's been significant work on secularization since the 1970s, mm -hmm. um, I think. And my sense, um, I'm, I'm not an expert in this literature, but my sense is that um, the, uh, the United States was in some ways exceptional that there um, has remained a stronger like religious tradition there than in many other comparable Western nations. Um, mm. And so one possibility is that we may be seeing a somewhat 
delayed version of some of the trends that happened elsewhere. I mean, and I'm, I'm originally from Quebec. And so I was very young when the, you know, the quiet revolution was mm -hmm, taking mm -hmm. place and um, you know, Quebec changed dramatically um, culturally during a very uh, brief period of time when it came to religious observance. Um, so I think sometimes these shifts have happened quite quickly and sometimes they have had more of a lag. Mm. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's interesting that, that a lot of countries that have a sort of national church have moved towards secularity, whereas the states that has, you know, is supposed to have separation of church and state has really uh, fallen prey to a kind of uh, religious nationalism that, uh, yeah, I mean, I know it's kind of a myth. Our, our, our mutual friend, Tony Ketty, <laughs> wrote, wrote, wrote a book recently about, uh, about all this that's, that's worth checking out. But um, yeah, I just, yeah, interesting stuff. I, this is fascinating. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, this, is, this is not related to, to religion, <laughs> uh, but, but just about something that's on your, your profile on, on the UBC website about your, your work with Ameri on American childhood in the 70s, 60s, 70s. Well, I'd, yeah. I'd love to hear uh, a little bit about that if you, if, if you can share. Oh, I'd be happy to. So I'm working on a book project right now about American children and parents and the state during the 1960s and 70s. Originally, I had thought it would be a project about the 1970s, but I came to realize that many of the trends I was looking at um, were already emergent earlier. So I widened the project. So this was a period of significant cultural contestation in the United States. Um, we often think about young adults at the center of protest movements, for example, of anti-war activism, the civil rights movement, but we don't tend to think that much about children and mm -hmm. how childhood changed during this era. So I was really interested in the question of what was the impact of all of the these movements of the era from feminism to civil rights to environmentalism to the backlash um, against um, progressive activism in the lives of children and um, and in the lives of parents as well like how did people navigate an increasingly divided and divisive culture during this period? And uh, how did they do this across generations? So those were the questions that have motivated my research. And I've been looking at everything from changes in the school system to changes in the way that children were born. Right. Wow. Well, and it's the, it's the kids of those kids that are <laughs> that left the church in the 90s, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there, I'm sure there's, we can bring it full circle here. Uh, what, what's that, uh, you said that's a book project you're working on. Is there, at, at what stage are you in 
on that. Can we look forward to that soon or? Um, not as soon as I would like probably, but I'm, but I'm writing the, the research is pretty much done. I've been working on this project in, uh, in bits for, um, about a decade now and, uh, doing, doing research trips intermittently as I could. So I'm, I'm writing it up. I hope to be done in the next year or two. That's great. I'll, I'll look forward to it. I'll keep my eyes open. <laughs> um, so I, I wonder if I could uh, kind of finish by asking, um, whenever I have academics on here, I like to ask them two questions. Uh, one is, well, what are universities for uh, now? Uh, you know, I think a lot of people have come to the realization that a university degree is not a guaranteed job. Uh, certainly, uh, I think you know academic opportunities in Canada are, are not <laughs> extensive, um, but and the other one is uh, you know if you do you have an elevator pitch for why uh, someone might want to study history, why what uh, you know if you were going to be that professor at the front who's going to make someone say I want to do that, <laughs> what, uh, what's your pitch for that? So to the first question, what are what are universities for? I agree with you that their main goal cannot be to train the next generation of professors. Um, the reason why I wanted to give myself those three years to think about it was because I was aware that it was a difficult field in which to get a job. And I think it's significantly harder now than it was then. So people who go on to graduate school in history should do so because it's their passion um, hoping, obviously, to be employed at the end of it, but um, there, there are not guarantees. So I think the university teaches skills that are really useful throughout life. And it's easier for me to speak to the value of an arts degree, like in the Faculty of Arts, mm -hmm. um, than outside of it, because that's where I work. So uh, so let me speak to uh, what an arts degree and a history degree can do for you. I think they develop stronger analytical skills, which people can use in a whole variety of jobs afterwards. How do you assess evidence? How do you deal with arguments? How do you figure out what's, what's right? Um, you know, what, what, what actually happened? How do you make sense of things? Um, they help people become better writers and communicators. And that also is a skill that's extremely transferable. They give students the opportunity to discuss interesting large questions collectively. Um, and to learn from one another, not only from the professor, but to develop collegial peer communities um, of, of learning. And they let people think about issues that are interesting to them. So someone who is interested in um, the environment, for example, could find ways of exploring that interest through a number of different disciplines. 
and enrich their understanding. So I think those are many of the things that the university can do is both provide a platform for learning specific skills like research, analysis, communication that I think are transferable to all kinds of jobs and um, thinking about issues that are issues of, that are a passion for them, um, following their own cu intellectual curiosity. Um, and that's a really precious experience. Um, mm. and, and I think part of why people who loved university when, they, when they've left remember it fondly is the, the opportunity to, to really indulge in thinking about things that they care about. Um, so your second question, was about history. Yeah. Um, and will you repeat that question for me just, one more time? If, if, yeah, I, I guess I just, do you have an elevator pitch for why, why history? <laughs> you know. I think the field of history asks big and interesting questions about how communities work, um, how individual experience matters, how ch and especially like how change takes place over time. Mm. Um, like, uh, how have people lived and experienced their lives in, in different moments in time? Like how shared is human experience over time? How specific it is, is it to specific historical circumstances? Um, uh, how can we how can we better situate the opportunities and problems that we face today by thinking about how people have dealt with similar issues um, in the past? So that's one set of things that I think is really interesting. Another is that in learning, in learning about history, we experience empathy for people whose lives have been different from our own, mm. um, as well as learning skills that uh, that I think are really transferable to to all kinds of uh, work environments. And the last thing I would say is that um, exploring these questions can be a lot of fun. It can be like trying to solve a mystery. You come across mm -hmm. something in history, and you wonder what the context is, and then you figure it out. And uh, there's a real sense of satisfaction in figuring out what the context is for something that happened in the past. Hmm. That's great. Uh, and uh, yeah, I just want to thank you for your time today. Uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation and I'm, I hope we'll see your book sooner than later. And um, yeah, I hope we get to meet in real life <laughs> at some point together. <laughs> so do uh, I. It's been yeah. a pleasure. Okay, great. Thanks for being here. Take care. You too. Hey, thanks for hanging out today. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Leslie Paris. Here's some things I'm taking away from our time. I love the encouragement from her story to chase what we love and be prepared to be surprised by whatever that turns out to be. If it truly sets you alight, it's almost certainly worth your time. And if you're passionate about a thing, let others in on it. You might just be the one who lights the spark for someone else. 
I also really appreciate that sometimes it takes real discernment to pursue our callings well. Leslie's willingness to take her time with this unexpected calling is worth paying attention to. Next, as a, a church leader, I'm thinking about the fact that the majority of so-called nuns are simply nothing in particular, <laughs> religiously speaking. The shoulder shruggers. I hope that that turns into an encouragement to have a witness to something deeply compelling, something even unavoidable, which is what I believe the gospel is. It's the sort of abundant life that Jesus calls us to. And finally, I like the idea that history builds empathy. Knowing how we got here is a reminder that life doesn't happen in a vacuum, and that can help us engage well with those whose road to this point has been other than ours. Thanks again for listening. Thanks to the Foxes and Fowl team, University Hill Congregation, and the Pacific Mountain Region of the United Church of Canada. Thanks as always to Davis Miller for the soundtrack. Check them out wherever you get your music. And until next time, grace and peace.